Just 18 days had passed since the Christchurch earthquake when another deadly tremor struck in a different part of the planet, this time Japan. The magnitude 9 quake off the northeastern coast of the country generated a massive tsunami, which swallowed coastal towns and sparked a nuclear meltdown. More than three years on, 258,000 people still don't have a home, and there are very few signs of actual construction. After last week exploring how Christchurch is coping with its rebuild, this Radio New Zealand Insight program travels to the hard-hit town of Mina Misenriku, where the population is dwindling as people's patience wears thin. Before the disaster, Mina Misenriku's population was 17,666, as you know, many people were killed in the tsunami and some left town to stay in temporary housing or with family and friends. In the future, this town is going to be moved up to the hills. The land will be developed up there, but after that, who knows how many people will return. We are worried about the number of people leaving Minami Sanriku. At the start of a bus tour of the tsunami-affected area, the commentary by the guide Fumio Ito for the tourists on board echoes the fears of many for the future of both the town and the region. Nearly 19,000 people were killed in the disaster, and since then about 70,000 more have fled to the Tohoku region to other parts of Japan or overseas. It's predominantly young people who are leaving, and they're leaving because of a lack of job opportunities and a lack of progress on the rebuild. I'm Kushla Norman, and this insight visits Minami Sandiku to explore how those living in the disaster-hit town are coping as the rebuild slowly grinds on. The sea is both friend and foe to Minami Sandiku. Fishing is the foundation of the economy, and the town is well known for its octopus, oysters and scallops. However, because of its hilly topography and V-shaped bays which funnel waves into the valley, Minami Sandiku is prone to tsunamis. It's had three major ones since 1896 and the town was prepared for more. A four and a half metre seawall and ten metre high tidal gates had been built after a tsunami hit in 1960 after the Valdivia earthquake in Chile. But this wasn't enough to protect from the 2011 tsunami. Literally, it was 600 kilometers of the Tohoku coastline. So we're talking about northest point was Miyako, southest point was, I believe, North Tochigi, actually. Mm -hmm. There were devastation. So just the, those entire 600 kilometers of Tohoku coastline. That's a, that's a point I think a lot of people don't really understand just how big of a space that is and just yeah. how much devastation was done. Angela Ortiz is a former kindergarten teacher turned aid worker. Based in Tokyo, she first came up to Minami Sandiku a week after the disaster and hasn't stopped coming back despite the mounting cost. Oh my god, hundreds of thousands probably. I bet I could calculate it though if I went back and looked at all my train really tickets. I think I said, yeah. Her organization, OGA for Aid, is trying to create jobs by revitalizing farming which has been slow to recover from the disaster because much of the land has been damaged by sea salt. I catch a lift with Angela Ortiz across Minami Sandiku, which sprawls across a relatively wide area, although it actually consists of four small villages. This was downtown, downtown Shizugawa, 
So this Shizugawa was like their commercial sort of downtown shopping area where you had the uh, supermarket and the post office and the, the wedding plaza and the hospital and everything. And that's now what I call this place is the Valley of Destruction. It, when I first came in here, it reminded me, I think it was um, that old book, Pilgrim's Progress, and he calls some place the Valley of uh, Devastation and Valley of Destruction. And that, I remember thinking of that, looking at this place and just thinking, it's the entire valley of Shizugawa just completely churned inside out in just absolute devastation. In Minami Sandiku, the tsunami left about 800 people dead or missing and destroyed more than 3,000 buildings. around that same place of total devastation Angela Ortiz just described. But now the rubble has been cleared and a beehive of trucks, diggers and cement mixers are getting the land ready for reconstruction. It's a bit like a desert here. The land's very flat and brownie, yellowy colour with huge mounds of dirt scattered all over the place. Now what they're doing with these mounds is they're raising the level of the land to 10.6 metres. The government said houses can't be built down here and it's just for shops, offices and factories. The earthquake alone caused the land to sink by 70 centimetres. The low-lying areas now flood easily during high tide and have been deemed too dangerous to live in by town officials. That leaves the surrounding hills as the only suitable spot. But land in Japan is expensive and securing building sites takes some time. One of the main problems for local authorities is tracking down who owns the land. In many cases, the owner has died with no inheritance plan, leaving many possible successes. And digging into the hills is going to be a challenge in itself, as Angela Ortiz points out. Developing a mountain isn't like paving a flat land. It's, it's really quite complicated and it's very complex. And also, this is a rural area, so certain like mountains are literally owned by different people. So to get a general consensus on how to go forward and where to develop and how to do that is going to take years and a lot of different people's involvement and that's one one of the just one of the components for why progress after a, a disaster like this is slow. The hills will mainly be used to build public housing apartments for tsunami victims to live in once they've left temporary housing. Few people in the disaster areas like most of Japan had costly earthquake insurance which is why the government is having to build about 21,000 apartments across the Tohoku region. The apartments will be rented out to residents according to their income. The government's reconstruction agency says work has already started on about 70% of the planned buildings, with the goal of having 80% of the work completed by March 2016. However, Yuko Hoshi, whose family is in the construction industry, says the progress is going very slowly. There's no project that's been finished. Everything is still a work in progress. Many people living in temporary housing still need to find somewhere stable to live. There are also some people who are still living in their own house, but it's been partially destroyed. Some houses were soaked through. I want to get support for these people. The slow pace of progress means tsunami victims will have to stay in their temporary accommodation, which is rent-free, much longer than the two or three years the government had hoped. The rooms are about seven and a half metres squared, 
It's very small. When my grandchildren are here, it's tightly packed. Plus, I have to get up early in the morning, so it's difficult not to wake people when I move around or have breakfast. 65-year-old fisherman Suzuki Yutaka is one of the more than 5,000 people who are still living in temporary housing in Minami Sandiku. He lives right beside his son, seven people, in two apartments. After two rounds of negotiation, he and his family have finally settled on a new place, but it will still be some time before they can move in. We'll have to wait until 2016 for our new place. The major construction company Mitsui Suimoto is involved, and they've said it won't be any later than a month at worst, because if it is, they are in the red. And there's also the time delay while you're trying to get permission from local government to build a house. It's not so easy to build houses, so I feel like we just have to tough it out for two and a half years. But those who can't wait for public housing will have to pay expensive reconstruction costs themselves. At a fundraising event for Minami Sandiku, the town's mayor, Jin Sato, told me prices for building materials had risen dramatically. Before the earthquake, the cost was about four and a half to five thousand dollars per three meters squared. Now that cost has gone up to nine thousand dollars. It's expensive. To put this into perspective, if someone wants to build a new house and they're happy with a small house, say about thirty square meters, if it were before the earthquake, this would have cost about $140,000. Now it would cost $475,000. Many people who thought they could build a house with $140,000 look at this new cost and just give up. I'm very concerned about this. Nobuko Kaneda works part-time at the liquor shop in the Minami Sandiku shopping centre. Her house was swept away by the tsunami and she now lives in temporary housing. She just wants her own place to relax in, but she says the rising cost of concrete and wood is making it hard to afford a new home. I have already decided where I want a new house, but it will probably take another three years to finish. Some places will take longer to rebuild. It's a different time scale everywhere. Their effect is like digging up the land on hills so that we can build houses and then finding people who can buy the land. If that wasn't an issue, it would go smoothly, but it's going slowly. Then there's a shortage of builders because of the Olympics, you know. Sometimes for the victims of the disaster like me, I can't help but feel like saying, aren't we a little more of a priority than the Olympics? The mayor, Jin Sato, says some construction firms have left since Tokyo was announced as Olympic host for 2020 last year, and that's a worry. The Tokyo Olympics is a national event, so I'm not necessarily against the idea people have left for that. The major companies who have given us a tremendous amount of support used to say the disaster area is our priority. After Tokyo was chosen as Olympic hosts, their stance has changed to the Olympics and the disaster area are our priorities. Unfortunately, that means that there are now two bases for activities. 
My tour guide, Fumio Ito, is a temporary housing resident himself. He points out there's a lot of public work going on in Minami Sandiku, but very little actual building. In front here, you can see a lot of machinery. The public office and hospital will be built here. If things go to plan, they'll be built by November next year. But in this town, nothing seems to go to plan. None of the buildings have been built as expected. The hill where I live, the land development was meant to be done last year, and building should have started by now. But we found old rubble there, so the land development won't be done for another two years. The government's spending about $350 billion on the rebuild throughout the Tohoku region. It's not known exactly how much will go towards Minami Sandiku. However, one academic says already too much has been spent on public works. Shun Kanda is a professor of architecture at MIT in Boston and has visited Minami Sandiku many times to advise on disaster resilient planning. In an email exchange, he told me that what's being spent in Minami Sandiku is the budget for a major city, not a small town, and it's like shooting a mouse with an elephant gun. He says raising the land and rebuilding on the flat is a waste of money, and the town should be moved to at least 20 metres above sea level. But Angela Ortiz says there's no way the people of Minami Sandiku are going to let go of their town. Obviously, that was a question that went through a lot of people's minds, especially foreigners who, you know, we've relocated, we've traveled a lot, and it's, it's quite second nature to us. Um, there was a lot of criticism on local people about wanting to remain in these villages and the amount of effort and energy that it would take to rebuild. Why not just relocate? But what I came to understand, and perhaps is something that other people will come to understand is that it's in their nature, it's in their culture. So what the mayor told me was that he's like, look, Angela, for you, this might be your first tsunami, but we've been through three. And right, we've in rebuilt. Minami in Minami and we've rebuilt. So these types of things don't scare us away. We don't leave our mountain. We don't leave our town. This is my ancestors' town, and their blood runs through my veins. And this earth is part of who we are. And that, obviously, I was really struck. I was like, oh, I see. Okay, who am I to tell you that you guys should up and leave? If you want to rebuild, let me help you. The convenience store, or the konbini, is a ubiquitous site in Japan, and Minami Sandiku is no different. There are at least half a dozen here, but still, three years after the disaster, no supermarket. It's a major sore point with the locals, who have to travel 40 minutes to their nearest grocery store. Shopping's a problem. If we don't have a car, we can't go anywhere. It's also hard for children or old people who are living here that cannot drive. 
The only option is to take a bus. Well, bus, walk or cycle. The bus only runs once every hour or two, or it might be less. The bus is always crowded with people. I hope that in future there will be more buses and a train so that it's more convenient. That's Ayako Nakajima, a 29-year-old hotel worker who moved up from Tokyo because she wanted to do something for Minami Sandiku. She's a rare breed in a town that's hemorrhaging young people, but she's committed to stay, even if everyday life isn't all that easy right now. Now, a supermarket is due to be built next year, but the reason for its delay thus far is where I am right now, the Sun Sun Shopping Village. The owners of these 30 prefabricated shops opposed the supermarket because they feared losing business. But even without a supermarket in the town, the shopping village is still struggling to attract customers. Every day is hard. Getting through every day, I go home and fall asleep. I haven't taken a holiday in ages, and now it's been two years. I haven't done anything with my home life. I feel I'm letting down my mother. Yuki Sato started her beauty salon in the temporary shopping village two years ago, feeling full of hope and responsibility to her community. But she's been finding it hard to get locals to come in, saying priorities have changed since the disaster and cosmetics is no longer one of them. I do get some customers coming in and saying they come to get away from things. It helps them relax. So I'm happy to have opened this shop up for them. But if you ask me how I'm coping, it's difficult. A few shops along is the Royal Fish Seafood Market. It appears to be doing a decent trade with customers popping in and out to buy the delicacy of the season. However, a shopkeeper, Akihiko Takeuchi, says there had been problems with exports because of the radiation leaks at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. There was rumour damage. We haven't been able to ship sea squirt to Korea for the past three years. Korea got its sea squirt from Hokkaido instead. We've only just started shipping it again to Korea this year. It took a long time. The mayor, Jin Sato, says Minami Sandiku's fisheries have made a full recovery, but other industries are lagging. In terms of our fishing industry, the numbers have gone back to pre-disaster levels. But the agricultural industry is a different story. The entire land was covered in sea salt, so recovery has been slow because we have to remove all the salt in the top layer of soil first. As for retailers, we have a shopping arcade, but we really need to build proper facilities and buildings. This is what we need to work on. Economically, they say it's recovering positively, but in truth, farming and retail profits have really dropped. Jin Sato says the challenge for Minami Sandiku now is to rebuild its population. So far, numbers have returned to about 80% of previous levels. But it is a struggle to draw back the young people. It is sad to see them go, but nothing can be accomplished if we worry about it all the time. We need to make a town that invites them back. The media keep reporting things like there are no jobs here, but the truth is we just don't have enough people. The media paint this picture of pity, but the truth is that if you have the motivation and will to work, 
We have work for you here. The whole region of Tohoku is facing similar problems. An ageing population, an exodus of young people and labour shortages. I'm now in Ishinomaki. It's a much larger town, well, city in fact, on the coast just south of Minami Sanriku. It suffered badly during the disaster, and out of the hard-hit towns, it now has the highest number of people living in temporary housing. Akiko Iwamoto, an aid worker with Peace Boat, deals with some of these 15,000 people every day. She explains to me that where they live was decided by drawing lots. That means they may not know anybody in the area they live in and they may have no friends. The closer they were as a community before they moved into temporary housing, the harder it is to be positive and outgoing to make new friends. So there are a lot of people that turn reclusive. Some may start drinking from the morning. Some may have nothing to do except watch TV all day. During the Kobe earthquake, there was a big problem with suicide. I think that's the same here now. It may not make the news and there may not be much coverage on the issue, but when you visit some homes, there are many people that have died alone or have committed suicide. People who have no friends have forgotten what it's like to simply speak with somebody. When we visit them, it's as if they suddenly remember the joys of communication and they can't stop speaking. Sometimes we can't understand what they're talking about because they speak in a dialect, but we nod and listen because that's what they need, somebody to listen. She says most people living in temporary housing are in their 60s, 70s and 80s and they're worried they may end up dying there. Akiko Iwamoto says there is so much uncertainty. The biggest problem is the fear and worry the people feel about their future. They have no idea when they'll be able to leave temporary housing and move into proper homes. They don't know how long the situation will continue. The fishermen are worried about how radiation will influence their sails. No matter how hard they work, the fish from this area may get a bad reputation, even if they're safe. Another issue facing Ishinomaki, like other towns along the Tohoku coast, is the planned 300-kilometre-long concrete seawall. Akiko Iwamoto takes me to the river it's going to be built alongside. The river used to be until here, but the, you know now that they build a land, kind of, then they are making a seawall like that. How high is it, high is it going to be? Oh... It's going to be like five meters, mm-hmm. yeah, 5.4. And so like that, that will block out these quite lovely views of the river. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Then the people in Ishinomaki love this river and then they love this scenery. So, you know, some people are strongly disagree with, you know, making a uh, seawall. Just inland of Ishinomaki in the city of Tome, an entirely different kind of seawall is being cultivated in greenhouses. We are trying to make what we call natural seawall made from trees. We are in the process of planting the saplings now. We started the year after the earthquake, 2012. So it's been three years. I think it will take another seven or eight years to finish. Tamotsu Taniguchi isn't completely against the concrete seawall, but says it won't have the staying power of a forest wall. 
The advantage of a concrete seawall is that it will immediately provide a sense of security for the people. It can withstand tsunamis to a certain degree, so it does help keep people safe. The bad point is that it takes a lot of money to build, several hundred million yen, and it will cost even more to maintain in the future. Those maintenance costs will be paid by our children, our grandchildren, and so on. A natural seawall is sustainable, and it will provide the people a place to relax. These trees are supposed to live for 9,000 years. They should be able to last till the next ice age. The seawall is also a contentious issue for Minami Sandiku, which relies heavily on tourism. Disaster tourism had been popular following the tsunami, but now that's starting to peter out. Although the only hotel in town is still very much focused on it, with tours and 3D television footage of the disaster on loop in the lobby. The owner of Hotel Kanyo, Noriko Abe, says the disaster can't be forgotten. What occurred here isn't something that needs to be hidden. We all can learn something from what happened. I'd like it if more people knew the reality of it, what's happened here and how the people feel. People from around the world, children and grown-ups. I would like everyone to know and understand what happened here so that it may help them make better decisions on how they want to live their lives. The skeletons of two buildings stand out on the bare plain of Minami Sandiku. They're the wedding hall and the disaster prevention centre. Angela Ortiz says there's plenty of debate over whether they should remain. There's a lot of conflict around that as well. The Bosai Centre or the Disaster Management Centre has been left to date. Whether that will remain for the long haul or not, no one can really say. There's a lot of pressure from the prefectural government to leave it there, comparing it to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where Nagasaki tore down all their ruins and Hiroshima left their dome there, and now it still attracts visitors. And um, it's like a shrine. Exactly. It is a shrine, it's a memorial, it's also a reminder. So, but there is also a lot of pain attached to that by the local residents, so many of them do want to remove everything. The buildings also have their own story, as my tour guide Fumio Ito explains. In front, here we can see the wedding and events hall. On the day of the disaster, they were running entertainment for the old people. Hundreds of people were taking part when the big earthquake hit. People panicked and they tried to go home. The staff knew there was no way they would make it before the tsunami came, so they held hands at the front entrance and stopped the old people from leaving. If you want to live, stay behind, was what they said. He describes how four people tried to hit home, but they were swept away. Those who stayed thought they would be okay if they went up to the third floor, but the tsunami came quickly, so they moved up to the roof. The tsunami reached the rooftop, but the wave did not steam in. It hit the building and went over the rooftop. When that happened, they thought they won't make it, but they all survived. 327 people walked away from the wedding hall survivors, and for that reason, Fumio Ito believes it should stay. This building saved many people, and that building coming up on the left, the Disaster Prevention Centre, 
Many people died. If these two buildings could remain after the disaster, it would be great. We can tell how dangerous the tsunami is through photos, but it's nothing like seeing it in real life. So I think both these buildings should remain. I'm Kushla Norman, and that's Insight this week from Japan. If you'd like to contact Insight, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production from Jeremy Veal.